I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales, and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. Listen to Crime Scene Today, where we talk about future and current events affecting law enforcement, forensic, and crime scene investigations. I'm your host, Dan Zentek. Today, we have Dr. Victoria Constance, the Executive Director, and Carrie Perhota, the Program Director of Children's Safe Harbor, a Children's Advocacy Center located here in Conroe, Texas. Now, Children's Safe Harbor may sound by name uh, like a wonderful place for children to go, but actually, it's a place that most parents would not what their children at. It's not a place that a child would want to be. It's actually out of necessity that this exists. It is a place that children go for services to receive after a being a victim of a violent crime, such as sexual assault or a witness to a violent crime, such as murder. So I know that both of these uh, women have done a great job locally in running their center, and they're here to discuss some of the things they've done and just what it's about and how it functions. So thank you all for joining us, uh, Victoria and Carrie. So, uh, Dr. Constance, uh, you've been over this harbor for many years. You've yes. watched it grown from a uh, small facility to uh, what y'all have done today. But if we could just start with the basics of what a CAC actually is. Thank you, Dan. What a, what a great pleasure to be here with you today and the opportunity to share with our community what uh, Children's Advocacy Center does and how long we have served and to really um, kind of create that place of awareness if you've never needed us, but we'd like for you to know about us. Um, actually, our movement in Texas is about 25 years old and Children's Safe Harbor, formal name, the Montgomery County Children's Advocacy Center has been opened here in this county for 21 years. We start with the opportunity from a law enforcement or a CPS worker that's responding to the crime of child sexual abuse. Over years, we have evolved to helping children that have been physically abused. Um, Carrie will be able to talk some about our new initiatives with human trafficking. But the first to our audience listeners, customers, if you will, are law enforcement and CPS because you have mandates to investigate crime and to do it um, in a joint partnership in the state of Texas. Fabulously, in terms of our state, children's advocacy centers are in the Texas Family Code and state, um, now Congressman Kevin Brady, previous state representative, charter member of our board of directors, went to our state legislature and put in place this model that says for the betterment of investigations, for our community safety, we wanna partner law enforcement and Children's Protective Services and create a safe, neutral place where our children can come and have that investigation and then be allowed to move forward in different kinds of services like counseling and um, prevention work. So simple, First customers are the folks in this community that you've started this radio show for people to understand. Law enforcement doing this incredible work to find an answer to what has happened in the child's life. Most of our cases, of course, are law enforcement because it is that we're going to see children hurt in all kinds of um, arenas or capacities, if you will. If they're in school, 
if they're babysitters, if they're victimized in a park. But when we have children that are hurt in their family systems, that's when our CPS partners come together. So they're going to refer a case to us. And the very first service, I love to call it the portal that opens our work, is a forensic interview. Which I know that, you know, and to back up just a little bit, the, um, I, I would, uh, we would love for y'all to be slow. We would love for y'all to not have a lot of work to do. Yes, uh, but reality is that the, the number one violent crime in this county, in many counties, uh, I would think uh, pretty much all over, is our crimes against children. Uh, it's something that the public sometimes is surprised by because it's not in the news all the time. It's not mm -hmm. something that we talk about all the time. And there's a reason for that. And we've talked uh, with Constable Gable uh, and referenced this on the show and, and uh, have mentioned it before. But just to reiterate, the, the reason most people do not know about the crimes is because it's usually a family member. It's usually someone who is closely associated with the victim. And by putting out, hey, we, we captured this guy, we captured this person who was sexually assaulting five-year-olds or, or whatever, well, you're telling them who the victim is because this was their father, their stepfather, their uncle, uh, their person that is directly connected, right? So uh, we don't share that, but the numbers speak for themselves. And I know that you uh, have many people that come through on a regular mm -hmm. basis to get the services. Uh, what all services are offered at Safe Harbor. So when we started um, 20 years ago, the service that we offered was forensic interviewing and then the team um, case reviewing, coming together to partner and coordinate what happened as that child told their story. And Carrie will be able to tell some more about that very important service. Then over time, we have a mission to provide very focused healing and, and counseling. So we started slow um, with one or two counselors. Now there are 10 on staff. When we started 21 years ago, we saw an average of 22 children a month for a forensic interview. Now we see over 200 a month. And some of our high point months, Carrie, have been? Um, October, we saw 274 children for forensic interviews. Now, and, and just to clarify uh, off the bat that just because someone is interviewed doesn't mean they're a victim. We're not saying that there uh, were 270 children that were sexually assaulted, but, but they were in an environment that they were either at risk, uh, alleged there was something that led them to come there to look deeper into that situation. That's correct. And that's really wonderful and important because we have what we like to talk about is a net, right? If, if a child is victimized in a family, and there are other children. One, one child has come forward to say, somebody hurt me. And there are other siblings. Well, our team is going to want to make sure that all of those other children have an opportunity to talk to a forensic interview and share, either to just say, yes, I can corroborate, support what my sibling said, or something happened to me. So we do this um, children at risk and children that are witnesses. And you're absolutely right, Dan. That's that space where we're seeing children and not all of them disclose, but we're grateful that we have the capacity to give them all that voice. Right, and it, it is focused very much on the interview. And uh, this was a big change in law enforcement. So many mm -hmm. years ago, it was very common that an officer would go to the scene, uh, the officer with uh, little training specifically in these type of crimes, just a, a patrol officer would uh, interview the child, 
basically why am I here, um, and then do a report. Then a detective would come around and interview the child, uh, having them tell their story, and then uh, a prosecutor would come and interview the child. So uh, the general idea uh, behind uh, one of the services that you offer is that they're only going to be interviewed once. Uh, we have told all the patrol officers, you don't interview kids. You take some basic information. Obviously, yes, why are we here? But we're not getting into the, the extreme details of it. Uh, then that is referred to detectives. They will set up an interview at your office. Uh, and that's where someone who is specialized to speak uh, two children, which that's how I actually met Carrie. For many years, that's exactly what you did. Obviously, you've progressed doing many other things in, yes. in your career, but uh, that was your specialty, uh, was doing forensic interviews. So if you could sort of explain why that's needed, what the difference is between you interviewing a child versus the detective, a prosecutor, obviously a, an officer. So yes, I've been a forensic interviewer for a really long time. Um, the goal of the interview is to reduce the number of times a child has to talk about what happens to them. So we really want to be that first person, that first point of contact. Um, realistically, that's not what happens. You know, caregivers will interview their children. They want to know what's happened. If a child talks to a school counselor, they may get a little bit of information, but hopefully they'll be able to refer the kid quickly to us or make a law enforcement report or CPS report so the child is brought to our center. Um, a forensic interview is really um, a way of collecting information or history from the child that, in a way that's developmentally appropriate. Um, we ask questions that, is not, that are not leading or suggestive. And the real goal of that interview is to allow the child to tell in their words what happened mm -hmm. to them. And, and not, e even the environment set up for the <clears throat> child, right? I mean, th this is not what we would see as like a detective interview room, just this, you know, um, very nothing on the walls just table chair i mean y'all y'all create an environment over at safe harbor that makes this as best a more comfortable place mm -hmm. to do this that's correct so from the time they walk into our waiting room it's it's a really child-friendly environment now the forensic interview room itself is very bland um, it's still child-friendly but we don't have a lot of things that could be a distraction to a child so it's mm -hmm. two chairs a couple of paintings on the wall and that's about it so what does someone have to do to become a forensic interviewer? So you have to have um, most across the state of Texas at our Children's Advocacy Centers of Texas require a bachelor's degree. Um, once you're hired at a Children's Advocacy Center, you're provided with training um, both on site and then there is um, training that's provided in Austin through our state association. And it's broken into three different block trainings. So. I train the train. I train the forensic interviewers. Um, the first one is we teach them basically how to conduct a forensic interview. It's a three-day training on how to get from "Hi, my name is Carrie Berhoda. I work here at this place called Children's Safe Harbor." To "Thank you for coming in and talking to me today." So, and then as the interviewer completes that training, they come back to their local center and they will conduct interviews, and then they'll come back to a second training where. It teaches you more about why we do the things that we do within the forensic interview. So the reason why we ask non-leading questions, um, different ways to ask questions. We also teach, um, we interview for lots of different things. So we will teach them how to interview children when there's they're witness to domestic violence or allegations of sex trafficking, those kind of things. So what would you say was one of the biggest difficulties that you have to overcome when interviewing a child? Oh, gosh. 
gosh, there's so many different things that can be a block for a child. Um, it could be the age of a child. I know interviewers, some of them really like talking to the teenagers because they're easier to talk to at times. Um, and then, you know, versus a two-year-old who can only give you really who, what, and maybe where something happened. So that can be a big challenge. So I know that, uh, and, and obviously, so what, what age range do you interview there? So at Children's Safe Harbor, we interview children um, from the ages of two all the way to 17, and then we will interview adults that have intellectual disabilities as well. Okay. So obviously over the years, uh, I'm sure that uh, you've heard many surprising things, right? And, and um, you know, something no different than what we deal with, things that uh, most are unaware of that are happening and, and those type of things. So um, have you ever... Um, well, I know you have. Have you? What do you do when you feel as though there's a child that has been abused, that um, you know just from the years of doing this that something's going on, but they're reluctant to tell you? You know, my job is to be neutral. Um, sure, I think inter I think all interviewers probably have a gut feeling that something may have happened to a child, but again, our job is to be neutral and remain neutral and objective throughout the interview, so we don't have an opinion of whether or not we think that something has happened to this child. Um, we have a series of questions that we can ask. You know, we try again, very open-ended to ask, you know, has something happened? Um, we become more direct in our questioning um, when we talk about specifically about body parts and things like that. Now, uh, Victoria mentioned earlier uh, at-risk children, so someone that may not uh, have been identified initially as a victim. Uh, so the importance, you know, I have uh, a uh, softball coach, we've had this before, softball coaches uh, sexually assaulted mm -hmm. one of the uh, children on the team. You have a whole team to interview. Mm -hmm. That's right? correct, yeah. I mean, so, uh, you know, explain sort of, I guess, the, the reason behind, behind that, the importance behind that. We just want to make sure that, you know, it's not just the one victim that's come forward. We want to give everyone on that team or that lives in that family household the opportunity to talk about if something has happened to them and ask those questions because you know, caregivers may not have asked those questions. Do you feel that sometimes the caregiver has, has led the child into what to say? I mean, sometimes I think that happens. I, I think it can maybe happen intentionally or in, in unintentionally that a child may be led. Just in a caring manner, trying to get the information out, but gave them ideas that weren't there to begin with. Correct, because they haven't had the training or this, you know, to understanding of how to ask the questions in a way that's not to lead the child. Well, and, and I know that that's one thing, you know, in law enforcement that we're taught is obviously when a child of a younger age is referring to sexual terms that we would believe that a five-year-old would not know, okay, that that's sort of a red flag standing out that this, how did you learn this, how did you know about this or whatever, and, and obviously a, a parent, I say intervening or, or trying to be helpful may have interjected that terminology uh, that... Uh, you would just have to find further. You need to find out what the parent talked to them about. Yes. So we would explain, you know, explore with the child what were they told about coming to the center, who did they talk to. Maybe if they use those terms in the forensic interview, we would ask, you know, what does that mean? Where did you learn that word? I like to, um, when I think about Carrie's work and our interviewers, um, I'll often do tours and public conversation with people, Dan, about them being incredible chess masters, right? Because they're sitting in front of a child, again, two to 17 years old. 
and they're engaged with this child creating a safe space for them to talk just them um, we don't have um, two-way mirrors we have very sophisticated equipment where the team member that has brought the case to us is still a part of this process but observing from our observation room um, because the case is still theirs right when Carrie's talking about us being neutral it is not our case it is still right. law enforcement and CPS so when she is talking she's helping this child feel comfortable working with however old they are their developmental ability only using words that they use while in her mind she's thinking about the who what where when that I need to be able to get information in a way that's appropriate for this kiddo to tell us so that I can help this investigation and I do I call you chess masters it's an incredible gift um, she does. How, ma'am, how long have you done this work? I've done this work for 13 years. And how many children have you interviewed? Um, I just calculated the numbers, like 3,600 children I've interviewed. It's um, incredible, over Carrie. The years. Now, I know that you service Montgomery County, but this CAC service is beyond Montgomery County. It yes. does. So it does. What other counties are? y'all taking care of um, so we are what's called a multi-county children's advocacy center because we serve Montgomery Walker and San Jacinto County um, okay. in 2019 there are 71 children's advocacy centers in the state of Texas um, and there's a blend of us that serve more than one county um, so the same process the same training that Carrie has doing as a faculty member for the state and our forensic interviewers, we travel to satellite offices, one in Cold Spring and one in Huntsville. So now in, in Texas, it sounds like there's a sort of uh, standard of operation, like everyone is to do this the same way. Now, is this a, a state standard? Is this a national standard for the operation of the CAC? That's perfect, Dan. Um, actually, in the state of Texas, again, we have our own standards that are um, passed through the Texas state legislature. And so our state association, Children's Advocacy Centers of Texas in Austin, is that state chapter that helps us all with training, um, uh, being able to facilitate and, and see it's a beautiful mix because we are a community nonprofit with standards of operation that we all must meet. And so from this, you asked me earlier, and it'll evolve through our time together, our first service is our facility, which is neutral. We're not in the police department. We're right. not in CPS. So that being neutral space for children and families to come is our first service. Then the second one is this incredible opportunity for kids to talk to us in their own developmental language describing what happened in their situation of victimization, right? So that's our forensic interview. There are standards for how our facility is neutral, how our forensic interviews are conducted, but how the team meets is really that third standard, right? Because it's the team that makes us happen. Without law enforcement and CPS, every two to three years re-executing a memorandum of understanding, we don't exist. Because it is your cases, CPS cases, that say, yes, this is best for children to be able to say what's happened and for our community to investigate and ultimately prosecute and offer healing for them. Now, you, you just touched on, um, you know, the, the team mentality, and there's a part that, that exists at Safe Harbor uh, that there are uh, meetings 
that occur with all members okay. every couple of weeks. Absolutely. Uh, so if one of y'all could speak to sort of what happens in those meetings, why mm -hmm. those meetings are important, what goes on? Yeah, so that's our um, case review meetings. So what we do is we'll look at the cases that have come through the center for, mm -hmm. for Montgomery County. We have that case review meeting every other week, every other Wednesday. And so we look at the cases that need to be staffed, um, where there needs to be a further discussion with our prosecutors, with our law enforcement, with Children's Protective Services, um, medical team, forensic interviewers, the family advocates, all of us that are ha that have a part of of that case. And um, all those people are at that meeting. They, they are. They, they're at that meeting and everyone has input. So even if it's not a detective's case, he may have had a similar case and so he can talk about, hey, you know, I tried this one with my case and this is what worked and, you know, prosecutors there to provide different suggestions on how to move forward. Well, and the other thing that it uh, provides us access to, and I thought about yesterday, we got an email of an upcoming meeting in reference to standards and things, but normally if I would like information from a hospital or CPS or otherwise, I will need to have court records and subpoenas and those type of things. Mm -hmm. However, being involved, directly involved in the system and sitting at that meeting, we can share that information. Everyone has signed agreements that Perfect. if you are involved in this case, that I no longer have to uh, serve CPS with this for you to tell me what's happening on the CPS end of this case. Uh, so that's a huge benefit to move these cases on much faster because many times waiting for a subpoena can take three, four months, depending mm -hmm. on just the backlog of where it's at. Correct. That's correct, Dan, and, and that's part of the legislative intent, right? If we're trying to help children that are hidden, not certain who to talk to, how to go through what they need to say to be able to get help, healing, and be well. We needed to also, um, for this movement, create a space where um, team members involved in this work could have confidential way to move the case forward and talk to one another, right? So that, that case m meeting has also advanced in our state. Um, 2015, we were given permission by the T Texas State Legislature, again, every CAC, to be able to see all of the CPS reports that come to law enforcement, right? That's another right. one of our services as we're building our conversation here. And that's called this MDT statewide intake report. We have five staff members that assist all law enforcement with the thousands of cases that come in. Again, that notion of we as a CAC staff are not telling law enforcement or CPS how to conduct their work. We are helping bridge that gap, helping coordinate, helping with that efficiency to say, if our leaders and our partners, our team, the heartbeat of this work says, this is the criteria that Carrie referred to. We're gonna see sexually abused children, children that are um, severely physically abused, you know, what does that mean? Children that are at risk, children that witness crimes, and you'd mentioned that when we started as well, then that's what we're saying we're going to do. Then we want to see those children support our work, be efficient in our case so that law enforcement can have what they need from that interview to then go down to the next part and steps of their work. Right, and it's been a great benefit. I know what you're talking about as far as CPS reports coming in. What, what these are from is when 
uh, anybody, any citizen can call CPS. There's a hotline to call if you believe a child's been abused, if there's some issue or otherwise, and they create a report, and this report then um, is forwarded to the local law enforcement, and now, as you said, of 2015, y'all are included in those reports, and you have people that uh, put eyes on it the same as law enforcement does, uh, but as you said, uh, there's thousands that come in. Now, mm -hmm. out of those thousands, it can be, you know, I, I saw this uh, kid get swat on the butt at Walmart because he did something or whatever. Uh, that's one thing, right? Those are the ones that, you know, we're not as concerned about uh, versus uh, the severe abuse cases, the sexual assault. I have seen this. I want to be anonymous because that's what it is. Um, and we've had to overcome some of those obstacles of the anonymous part because um, it's limiting because if we have an anonymous person who says something and we have a child that is four or five that is, again, not able to really verbalize what's going on and more importantly, getting them to the harbor, getting them there for the interview when it wasn't a caregiver or someone directly connected. So. Uh, that creates a challenge, but y'all have added people to help with that and, and serve with that, and it, it's been a great uh, asset to law enforcement doing that. Um, and I know that, Carrie, you were behind that. How many cases has it increased? Is it pretty much staying steady? Where are we at with that? Oh, it's definitely increased our cases. So just looking at our numbers, um, you know, from 2,166 in 2018, we're already seeing 2,449 for 2019. And that's, you know, there's been a huge jump. Um, in 2015, we saw 1,169 children. So definitely, yeah, it's, it's huge. It's uh, you know, and and just like with law enforcement, it's no different. Y'all, uh, there's never enough people, right? We we mm -hmm. never have enough employees. I mean, we we do the best what we can, and and y'all do an amazing job. Law enforcement mm -hmm. does an amazing job. Uh, but the one thing uh, I wanted to point out is, uh, as you said, y'all are not law enforcement. Mm -hmm. uh, y'all are a nonprofit. Yeah. Okay, so this is. Uh, run by donations. Mm -hmm. okay? uh, Y'all are not a, a county facility nope. by any means. Uh, so there's a couple things I want to touch on, and, and we're certainly going to get back to what y'all do. But uh, so uh, I have uh, many dogs. I have Alaska Malamute at the house stuff. We were out at uh, PetSmart to go mm -hmm. buy something for the dog. And I noticed, as being around y'all for many years, the big safe harbor symbol uh, mm -hmm. on uh this pet smart uh stuffed animal thing okay so i know we yes. we spoke and uh so tell me what that's about okay obviously i can, I can buy a stuffed animal at pet smart and throw it in a, a children's safe harbor logo bin but what does that do oh that's awesome um and thank you for that um we were approached and this has been an incredible six-year process dan by pet smart locally and it is the one um, in Portofino, in Conroe, and in Magnolia. And they asked us, um, would it be possible to partner with you from October through the end of the year? PetSmart actually purchases these lovely plush stuffed animals. So we have Lucky, we have Chance, we have Hope. This year we have a lovely um, Wish. She's a unicorn. And they said, we're going to purchase them and we're gonna leave them in the store. And if you'll share information with our store and our public around if they give a $5 donation, the, the stuffed animal goes into a bin and we collect them and we give them to the children in need. So the first year, Dan, we only had them for Christmas time. Mm 
as every year has progressed. These fabulous stuffed animals that have been given, and this is just the generosity of our community, looking at our information, how we help traumatized children, and saying, sure, and they're beautiful in the way that they partner and sell, and you see it, and then for $5, that many of them are mine, that I pay $5 for, goes in a bin. Our staff um, and volunteers collect them. All throughout the year, we now have had thousands and thousands of them. In fact, they appear to multiply when they get to us. Right. <laughs> Well, and, and what I've what I've found is that most people, when they, you know, it goes back to, to your slogan, you know, uh, know us before you need us. That Correct. What I've found is when people actually find out who you are mm-hmm. and what you do, uh, they're they're willing to help. They want yeah. to help, but it's that not knowing anything about Safe Harbor, which right. is, you know, why we're talking today and why I know you speak on a regular basis throughout mm-hmm. the community trying to make people aware right. uh, that this exists. Now, I have had people that have also asked me as they've learned about volunteer opportunities. Right. And so uh, what type of volunteer opportunities exist at the harbor for the public to help you all out? So there's lots of different ways that a, a volunteer could help. Um, we always need someone in our waiting room. Or, you know, we have a lot of kids that come in and out, so somebody that could sit and play and color with the kids, um, but a lot of people don't like doing that, um, so there's some beh- behind the scenes work that they could do, making copies, helping make folders for our clients, um, counting bears that come in from the um, PetSmart, different donations that come in. Everything that we receive as a donation has to be logged and tracked, and so a lot of our volunteers help take care of that. Um, they're constantly helping our family advocacy program by making folders and different things. There's a lot of different ways that volunteers help us. So what is the requirement for someone to be a volunteer? Because sure. obviously we're just not letting anybody through the door to be around the kids. No, absolutely. Um, I'm going to go to our website, which is um, childrensafeharbor.org. And on our website, there's a tab for volunteerism for folks to go look and see what we're doing. Um, all children's advocacy centers are asking someone to be 18 years and older so that when they're coming on site, when they want to be what Carrie was referring to as a volunteer child watch working with the children, we do extensive um, recruitment, background criminal history checks, um, sexual registry checks. They're new in the new standards to make sure that when you are involved in a daily ongoing, I want to sit, read books, be with them, um, be on site in the facility in our, invest, in our um, forensic interview and also in our counseling program, they have to be vetted. They're trained. Sure. They have hours. We also have others that Carrie was referring to that may not want to sit with children but wish to um, donate their services every other Wednesday, for instance. We have a fabulous church group that feeds our law enforcement and our team at those case reviews. And um, their grace is to say, here, you know, we really support your work. We're going to decorate the facility for Christmas. We're going to come and feed your team fabulous breakfasts. We're going to support your facility if you're younger and you're um, an Eagle Scout, then we have had great um, 
what we call supply drives, right? Either holiday drives or just needs for juice boxes and um, materials. So Eagle Scouts have done drives for us. They've done uh, work in our uh, playground area, right? And they've made beautiful um, swings in ways that they can show that they're committed to the community. So if you're younger, it's often that your parents or your church group or a school um, will do a drive for us and you can be a child giving to other children in need. So there's lots of ways that you can come on site or you can really support and bless us. And then some are just also doing public speaking. And, and, do do. and many of these you can find on that volunteer tab. Absolutely. They're so, all there from the wish list to the how to, you know, how to volunteer and the form that needs to be filled out to be able to come and talk with one of our staff. Okay. So getting back a little bit to what y'all do, if um, when a child comes to your facility, what, what can they expect when they walk in the door? What happens to a child? So yeah, I'll take that one. So a child um, and their family will come together. Um, we let the non-offending caregivers come in. Alleged perpetrators are generally not allowed on site or on the property of Children's Safe Harbor um, because we want that child to be able to talk to us and feel safe where they are. So the child um, comes in, they're in the waiting room, they're playing with different toys, puzzles, they're with a the volunteer. Um, the caregiver will sign in with our client service specialist, the ladies up front, and um, they will have an opportunity to fill out some paperwork and stuff. While that is going on, um, the forensic interviewer and the family advocate are meeting with our law enforcement team and our Children's Protective Services just to um, get what's, what are these allegations, why are these children being brought to us. We don't get a lot of information as interviewers, but we do get some. And again, the child's up front playing with um, toys and things. The interviewer and advocate will then meet with the caregiver and interviewer will take some time to explain what is a forensic interview. Um, a lot of these caregivers have really no clue why they're there um, a lot of times and they're in, it's a traumatic event and so there's a lot of crisis going on so they, they need that um, opportunity to really understand what their child's about to go through. And so um, once that's complete, the interviewer will go ahead and start with the forensic interview while our family advocates um, take time to provide resources and really allow the opportunity for the family to talk about, you know, what's going on with their life and support systems that they have. And then um, as once the interview is complete, the forensic interview will, the forensic interviewer will stop the equipment, um, take the child up to the front and um, they'll be back in the waiting room playing um, while we're meeting with caregivers or the team is meeting with caregivers. Mm -hmm. So at, at what point uh, would, um, I guess, counseling be provided? I know that counselors are on site, so is that something they come back later for? Is that something scheduled then or how does that work? Actually, we've grown so much that we had to move our counselors off site. So it's kind of a big challenge and struggle that we have had over the few past few years just having our counselors no, no longer on site they're just down the road so they're not that far but when a child makes a disclosure um, there's different criteria that they have to uh, meet um, to get into our counseling program but typically those children who make a disclosure it is clarifying disclosure I mean they, they've admitted something happened to they them. have stated that something has happened mm -hmm. to them right sometimes we have children that do not make a disclosure but maybe we know something's happened because there's been images taking of them or oh, there's you know video of the assault things like that so those count those children would qualify um, possibly for counseling services. and then they they leave there to go there or it's it's scheduled for a later time that they go for their counseling so our family advocate department um, completes a referral and then um, submits it for counseling and then they'll determine whether or not you know 
they'll, they'll be able to be seen for services. Mm -hmm. And so they'll come back. Uh, it's usually, our turnaround's pretty quick. We have, we submit the referral within 48 hours. And so Carrie's um, been adding another service, Dan, and another part of what can be expected. She's referring to this partnership of forensic interviewers and family advocates. Right. That's a new part of our um, movement that's really blossomed over the past six to eight years. And the idea um, from the, the movement of um, children's advocacy centers was we have folks that are trained specifically to support the child with this forensic interviewer. We've got our team of law enforcement and CPS. But there began to be this recognition that, again, we keep talking about caregivers because that could be parent, it could be a foster parent, um, it could be family member, right? That that individual, whoever that family member, non-offending on our site, they also needed support. They needed a professional staff member to explain to them what is happening in the system. And so we started with one, two, now we have eight. So we have eight full-time forensic interviewers in 2019, eight full-time family advocates, many of them bilingual. We serve with master word any language that might need to happen if someone is Russian speaking or, or um, Asian in our community. We support that because a kiddo wants to be able to tell somebody something so intimate in their own language, right? Sure. So yes. they're helping at the same time that child is being interviewed with a forensic interviewer about what's happened in their lives, their parents, their caregivers, their guardians are visiting with family advocate, going through a needs assessment. Beyond this investigation piece, explaining to them what's gonna happen next, are there other issues? Do you need um, support with housing? Do you need support with your school? And so there's this great kind of wraparound partnership and they all have someone to connect to. And those advocates are working with the caregivers. Then their role is to do that link across departments. Do we need that counseling? I'm gonna help get that referral. And they're also gonna do um, another service I wanna bring out um, to this, this audience and to you here today, is that some of our cases need a very specialized medical exam. Right. And that's a pediatric forensic nursing exam, a sexual assault exam. And our family advocates will work with our law enforcement partners who are the authorized um, person as part of that team to say this child has been assaulted and that we need a certain part of our investigation to be that. And so they will refer. Currently, um, over our many years, that's a full service model, Dan, from the interviewing to the advocacy work, to the medical piece, to the counseling piece. We are a nationally accredited, high capacity, full service children's advocacy center. You wanna talk a little bit about who we're working with in the medical piece, Carrie? So we're currently working with Texas Forensic Nurse Examiners. Um, we've had the opportunity in the past to work with Memorial Hermann and Texas Children's, um, but we recently signed a contract with um, Texas Forensic Nurses Examiners, or Texas f and &E is what they, they go by. And, they're able to um, come to our center and provide non-acute exams uh, for children so the child doesn't have to wait in a hospital setting and um, for hours at a time. They can you know, come in for their exam. It can either be scheduled the day of the forensic interview or they may schedule it after the forensic interview. Um, but um, Texas Forensic Nurse Examiners also go to you know, different hospitals around the Houston area in Montgomery County, which has really been a big blessing for 
Yeah, the touch on that is one of the problems I know when um, when I was working it, when my teams were working it, was um, being a uh, sexual assault nurse, uh, an examiner, um, requires specific training and requires a lot of money. A lot of hospitals do not uh, have that. And even if you paid for one or two nurses to receive that, are they on shift at the time that they come in, right? Uh, and so the... The model that was used before, as you said, we used Memorial Hermann, right? And uh, they were mainly stationed downtown. And depending right. on what hospital they went to, they would respond right. uh, to that hospital. And due to the amount of cases, uh, uh, the delay uh, that would happen would be many hours at times. Uh, and again, uh, when you're dealing with a child uh, waiting in a hospital environment and those type of things, it's uh, it's just not something that we would like to happen. It's it was necessity at the time, and, and obviously we have found a different solution currently that seems to be working uh, very well uh, with this uh, new uh, contract that we have. Um, now, uh, one thing I certainly wanted to touch on was, uh, as you said, you all know, been growing. The counselors no longer fit. The interviews um, have uh, been exceeded uh, beyond, beyond, and have to add more interviewers. Uh, so y'all have grown outside of this facility by all means. And I know, uh, and speaking with you and going to many events that y'all are looking at a new facility. Yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about where you're going and, and what you're planning on that. Well, it's exciting. Um, we, what Carrie's referring to, um, sort of with the numbers and being able to say from, from 2015 through now, 2018, 2019, we had 14 staff handling the cases that were referred to us. Um, we now have 35 staff. And the volume of work that has come to us, both by the statewide intakes that we were talking about, being able to support our county's incredible population growth, Dan, and being able to move, we had an opportunity to say, we're going to expand our current facility 15,000 square feet to just help with the interviews and the family advocacy, that first stop. Yep. Then we moved the counseling center um, to two suites. We've grown to 10 counselors, individual family group counseling. And what was beautiful in um, 2015 is that we didn't miss or lose any family by saying, we're gonna travel 6.5 miles up the road. You're gonna have your interviews here your family advocates here, but our other service that's this very lovely rented facility will allow you to have counseling, trauma-focused, your needs for you, your parent, your child, and your siblings. So that growth has continued. What Carrie's referring to for us is the challenge about not all being in the same building. Right. So when we looked at that, we realized that something was happening with the growth of this community, and we traveled to our northern partners. We went up to Dallas, Denton, Plano, and asked them how they were dealing with population explosion. And we came to a concept of a permanent home for Children's Safe Harbor. And we really, myself and the board of directors, said, we want to do that. And we began this campaign. And the campaign really um, activated in 2016, where we have architectural drawing designs for a 40,000 square foot building. We have land already purchased um, on the loop. Let me get my address correct. 
There's a beautiful sign that says future home of Children's Safe Harbor. It's at um, 3006 North Loop, 336 East. And part of our growth is going to be, of course, to bring everyone back together. The lands purchase, the architectural drawings there. Um, our campaign is about a third of the way fluid. It's a $12 million campaign, and we've raised $3 million. And the, the vision is also that we will grow all of our team partners, and two in particular. We have great support and interest in bringing the Internet Crimes Against Children, that whole um, piece that I'd like Carrie to talk some about, and then also to bring the other um, supportive players in the Department of Family and Protective Services, those that do parenting and education training, those that help with what's called family-based services, so that our Children's Advocacy Center is not just our staff. We are already co-located with Precinct 3. Right with Montgomery County Sheriff's Office, with Conroe Police Department. We have a clinic where our medical provider can come and, and serve our families two days a week. But we're also looking to expand to have greater um, opportunity for the community to join us. There will be a very large space for training, for ongoing um, partnerships with community awareness pieces. And then the greatest part of it is it's, six, it's um, 17 acres permanent home. We can continue to grow as the right. county grows and not have to continue to ask um, donors to continue to help us grow. We have land, we want to have a healing garden, and we're pretty excited about that potential. Yeah, there, and there's no doubt it's growing. I think it was last week, um, I'm not sure which news source it was from, that Conroe was the number one city growing in the U.S., okay. so okay. obviously it uh, it's coming, okay? Uh, and as we know, it, it doesn't matter. When population grows, crime grows, and as we said, this is the number one violent crime that we deal with, that everyone deals with. It, it's just, it's going to be there, right? Um, and... <clears throat> Now, I know that uh, uh, you would love anybody to come just cut you the uh, uh, $10 million. What, what do you need left, mm -hmm. right? And yes. they'll uh, uh, we'll build That'd it tomorrow. <laughs> That'd be awesome. But uh, obviously a little bit of time, it, it is uh, um, a tax deduction. Y'all are a 5013C. Yes. Uh, we are coming close to the end of the year. If anyone is looking uh, for uh, any organization to donate to, and uh, certainly we have something next week uh, we for do. anyone that – uh, would like to come out. Uh, we have uh, what we refer to as our safe harbor breakfast mm -hmm. uh, that we put on every year uh, in conjunction with uh, Precinct 3 Constable's Office and uh, the uh, Longhorn Steakhouse. Mm -hmm. And so that'll be uh, next Friday. Yes. yes and it will. Um, a minimum donation at the door is $20. So $20 for a ticket. You can pay there. Uh, you can certainly stop by Precinct 3 Office and I would uh, gather. Uh, Safe Harbor is selling tickets also if you want to do that, but certainly uh, no re need to go out of your way. You can come straight there yes. uh, and, and provide. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, that joint venture. Oh, it has been just an incredible blessing. Um, when we're talking about any nonprofit in the community, um, we all are blessed by um, those that want to invest in our mission. And um, it has been this beautiful partnership between Precinct 3, Constable Ryan Gable's office, and Billy Banks, the manager of Longhorn Steakhouse. What is so amazing is that this is our, our sixth annual breakfast fundraiser. So they are a restaurant that serves lunch and dinner. They don't serve breakfast. Right. 
this fabulous manager has chosen to partner with us by having his staff come in. He creates the breakfast. People can come from 7.30 to 9.30 in the morning, have a wonderful, full cowboy breakfast. And then the entire proceeds, that $20, comes absolutely 100% back to Children's Safe Harbor. So he is buying the food, paying his staff, allowing for us to have a moment in December at the end of the year to come and celebrate and talk and visit and share. Um, Constable always has an opportunity to share his beliefs and, and uh, how we've been working together. But it's just an incredible space for, when we're doing fundraising, there's always costs. There's, sure. there's well, venue costs, there's you know expense costs that Billy Banks and that restaurant for this many years has said, no, we really believe in your mission and we're going to do this. And he also has shared with us if we ever need food or we ever need anything else that we can catch up and check in with him. So I would highly recommend folks to come out. A couple years ago, we had snow. That's that true. <laughs> uh, we are not promising snow this no, year. No, but I just didn't uh, remember I, that. <laughs> it could happen. It could be 80 today and 20 tomorrow. We are in Texas. And we still so, had the breakfast, and it was uh, awesome. So something, I don't want to say it's new, it's not new, it's been happening for years, but I would say it's more of a focus and something that y'all have now been involved in and taking on is uh, the human trafficking uh, part of this. So uh, how has that uh, included or uh, increased, I guess, business for lack of a better term? I don't necessarily think it's increased our business. I think we're recognizing that a lot of these children that we were already serving were victims of human trafficking. I mean, I do think we're seeing some more, but I mean, there we were seeing a lot of girls that were and boys that were victims of human trafficking that just were not being identified as that. So we've been working really closely with our governor's office, um, with the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office, the uh, county attorney, um, to put together uh, care coordination, um, which is our Children's Safe Harbor will be the care coordinator for Montgomery County, and so we'll be, you know, really able to provide more one-on-one -on -one consistent services with these victims well, no, survivors one of, the, one of the big challenges we have with human trafficking is they they certainly have been groomed to the level of of non-cooperation right i mean that's been pounded in their head to not cooperate with law enforcement not cooperate with this and and many times it's at the threat of uh, hurting their family uh, family members or other things of that nature so <clears throat> i would expect that um you know as you are interviewing those or as you have opportunities as those come in i i believe just same as with law enforcement there they may be more challenging uh than than others because uh they've been prepared they've been prepared that if this happens uh to not cooperate and i know that that's going to be a new challenge not only for law enforcement uh but for y'all so uh victoria is there uh, any things that I don't want to miss something that you wanted to talk about about Children's Safe Harbor. Well, um, I, this has been really wonderful because it's just let me sit here and smile and think about our growth and, and sharing um, what we're doing and how we have uh, moved this community by a tremendous collaboration. Um, I'd like to share Again, kind of recapping on the services and um, gonna give a couple of high points from our 2018 annual report uh, that are uh, particular services. And then I'm gonna share some actual statements from caregivers that have walked through our doors. So we were talking about these intakes when we're looking at statewide intakes. And in 2018, 
this staff saw reviewed 5,611 of them. Understanding that 2,166 children came in through that forensic interview is exactly what we were talking about earlier. There's a screening, there's a vetting around what's the most important case that law enforcement and CPS is going to bring to us. We served from our family advocates, those partners to caregivers, 3,676 individual family members. One, I love this quote, um, I instantly felt comfortable and safe in a foreign situation. I really appreciate how comfortable and helpful the staff was. The facility was very clean and inviting, and it is, even though we're growing in greater need. We served in our counseling 4,481 hours of counseling for focus on children and caregivers. Our volunteer program was 65 direct service volunteers and a special shout out to Bikers Against Child Abuse because the Seven Coves chapter of Bikers Against Child Abuse helps our children when they're going to court. If they're frightened about being in the courtroom, they adopt them. Uh, when they feel that they have need of safety in their home or in their neighborhood or near their school while their case is moving forward. And this will be the eighth year that they create a holiday party on site for our children. Um, Biker Santa turns up. And it's pretty amazing <laughs> with reindeers. It was one, one sweet little one was saying, you know, to me, near me one year, uh, you know, Mama, I didn't know Santa rode a Harley. And she said, well, today, honey, Santa is riding a Harley. And it's a community effort. Um, the other thing in terms of the counseling, I want to share two more quotes. Um, uh, fabulous grandparent said my child is more open now after this counseling he doesn't stay in his room a lot thanks to safe harbor i'm getting my grandbaby back and another about the work the information provided by my family advocate was outstanding and i feel confident i can fully meet my children's needs well victoria i appreciate y'all coming in and one of the big things that law enforcement is so appreciative of what y'all do besides working with our cases and helping our cases is as law enforcement we are focused on the case, right? And we're getting this to trial. Y'all are going beyond trial, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to trial, we're moving on to our next case. Uh, Y'all are actually helping these children beyond that uh, to uh, heal from that, uh, to move on in life with them and their families. And that's something we cannot thank you enough for. Mm -hmm. So thank y'all so much for coming in. Thank and we you. appreciate the time. Oh, thank you so much. Thank it's you. been a great pleasure.